Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast and in the studio today by Tim Guinness. Tim is the founder and chairman of Guinness Global Investors. And in fact, this is his second time around, having previously founded Guinness Flight, which was sold to Investec in 1998. Still active as a fund manager today, he works on the £417 million Guinness Global Energy Fund and several other portfolios. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> um, now, Tim, you've you've seen a few bear markets in your career. Uh, not to put too fine a point in it, I suppose. How do you how do you think about downturns as an investor? I started in the city in 1970, and three years uh, after I'd uh, done that, I was in a corporate finance department, and I find myself having to work on rescuing Burma oil. Wow! Now. Uh, this was in the 1973 stock market crash, and their biggest shareholding uh, was a stake in BP. And I was quite shocked uh, when I found myself pointing out to my director that the BP share price had halved, and because the oil price was surging, its price-earnings ratio had got to 1.6 times. Of course, over the next a few years, BP uh, re recovered uh, actually hugely, and it ended up, I think at the bottom it had gone to £2.50, and it ended up at £20. Um, and so, uh, you know, that taught me that investors can be a bit irrational mm. uh, during bear market crashes. Uh, another experience... Um, was with a, a fund I launched that tracked the Wired Index. This was in 1998, about November, I think. Uh, and the Wired Index was an index created by Wired magazine that was investing in 40 stocks in the new economy. Right. Internet, global communications, and so on. Now, uh, the timing of the launch was pretty good. Uh, markets were very strong in 1999 and through to the middle of 2000. Then what happened? We had another crash uh, and everything plummeted and we were holding our heads in our hands and then things slowly recovered. And I remember doing the maths because I set up my existing company, Guinness Asset Management, in 2003. Mm. And I was look and we were taking over the management of this fund. And I looked at its performance from November 1998 through to January uh, 2003. And that had covered the rise and the fall and then the recovery. And the extraordinary thing was that the fund, the NASDAQ and the S&P, which had all diverged quite significantly at various times over that period, had ended up in exactly the same place at zero. So uh, that taught me that, you know, what goes up comes down and then recovers. Uh, so that's my attitude when I'm th thinking about um, the stock market, their market that we're currently experiencing. Uh, to investors is, you know, don't panic. Right. What goes down comes up. Um, and I guess uh, another thing that uh, I would say to investors, yeah. um, and perhaps I should add, is that I'm basically a long-term investor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in one's having a conversation, you need to establish... Uh, whether the person you're talking to uh, has got a short, medium, or long-term time horizon. Right. I believe that equity investing is principally suitable 
for the long-term investor who wants to preserve the real value of his wealth and grow it over time. Uh, and uh, then I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with a cousin of mine uh, who was a very good investor, and he said to me, the only thing you need to do, Tim, uh, is to uh, you know, invest at the bottom of a bear market and then wait for 10 or 20 years and then sell at the top. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always thought about this. But actually, I think it is quite difficult. Uh, and I've concluded I, I don't necessarily have that skill set. So I'm more the investor. I'll ride out the storm. Okay. Um, and I think there's one other, a couple of other big picture things I want to share yeah. uh, with um, you uh, about equity investing. Mm. Uh, in the early 1920s, and I'm not sure how many people have thought about the early 1920s much. Um, the only German investors who really came through unscathed from a huge inflationary bout that they had then were those investing in equities. And then, uh, but I've got to be careful of being too bullish because I will admit that if you invested at the top of the 1929 um, bull market, uh, you did have to wait 24 years uh, until 1954 until you had recovered the real value of your investment. However, I'm a long-term investor, and had you then continued to hold, uh, you know, over the next uh, 60 years, you would have seen your investment go up nine times in real terms, and you'd have got the dividends on top. Right. So as you can tell, I'm not a market timer. Yeah. Well, well, I suppose that, you know, that, that brings me on to, to the next thing I was going to ask. I mean, maybe in a, in a way it's best to disregard this question, but I suppose I was going to say, where, where do you think we're at in the, in the current downturn? I mean, the news flow, particularly in the UK, just seems to get worse and worse. Okay. Um, no, I love this sort of question, uh, and I do have views. Um, and I think it's pretty simple, really. Uh, we are in the 11th bear market uh, since World War II. And I think we can learn something from looking at the previous uh, 10 um, uh, bear markets. Mm -hmm. And I've done that, and I have concluded uh, that this bear market is going to end on March the 27th, 2023. Uh, and it's going to hit, if you, and I follow the S&P 500 mainly, it's going to hit 3,287. OK. OK. <laughs> I, I, OK, I'm joking. OK. <laughs> And I think it's very important that we all remember that anyone who tells you that they know uh, where the price of yeah. the stock market is going um, is um, probably both a liar and a th definitely a, th uh, a thief. Or at least some kind of salesman. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, why did I, why did I come up with those dates and, and, um, and the level to which I think the market could reasonably go to? Yeah. Well, I looked at, I looked at the uh, 10 previous bear market declines. I, decli I decided to exclude the two very shallowest, where the market only went down about 20%, uh, and the very sharp one in 1987, when it, when it crashed and then recovered in about two months. And I looked at the other seven. And the, uh, the average length of those bear markets was 15 months. So it's dead easy. When did this bear market start? Uh, December the 27th, uh, 2021. And so that's how we get to March 
the 27th of 2023. Mm. Uh, what about the decline? Why am I, why am I um, uh, telling you it's going to bottom? You know, the S&P is today around 3,600. Uh, for those who don't follow the S&P, uh, it peaked at about 4,800. Uh, and so it's down 25%. Uh, and uh, when I look at the, the bear markets I've referred to, the 10 bear markets, um, there are three pretty bad ones where the market fell 50%, more or less. Uh, and we've got 1973-4, we uh, which was a, a banking crisis, and there were lots of things went wrong in 1973-4, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we had uh, 2000, what I would call a stock market bubble crash, and then we had 2008, another banking crisis. Um, so I've got those three, and then, yeah. and, and then, and then I've got another, uh, another four where the market fell sort of 25 to 33%. Uh, and I am cautiously saying that I think we're in, we're, we're in that category of bear market. I'm also, uh, I've always loved looking at Fibonacci. Now, I, I okay. Don't, I, I don't, I, I'm not a chartist. One plus one plus two plus three <laughs> exactly, plus one. Yeah. Exactly, and the golden mean, and um, uh, those who follow Fibonacci wearing a chartist hat, to repeat, I'm not a chartist, but I do look at it, because it tells you, I think, something about, about the behavior of crowds. Uh, and um, By charters, you're talking about technical analysis. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, but I'm, I'm, this is just very big picture. Yeah. And, and the Fibonacci, the people who like looking at Fibonacci uh, movements, they look at retracements, and they like when, when a market retraces by about 32% of its rise from the previous bottom, that's a Fibonacci point, and when it retraces 62% or 61.8% to be precise, uh, um, that's a pretty important um, support point. And that's, what I'm, that's where my 3,287 comes from. Uh, of course, uh, this may be a more, a more, a more serious bear market. Um, why I am not putting it into the worst category, Although there are similarities with 1973, but perhaps I will touch on. Uh, touch on. Uh, in 1973, mm. we had a war. We had the Arab-Israeli War. Uh, we got Ukraine. Uh, we had uh, foreign exchange market um, dislocation. We just uh, the, the Bretton Woods Agreement had just come to basically broken down. Uh, the U.S. dollar had left the gold standard. <clears throat> just like um, we've seen quite wild fluctuations in exchange rates recently. Yeah. Although there was a quite an important difference back in 73, the uh, US dollar weakened, and of course this time, this time around it strengthened. Uh, we also were seeing an, uh, an energy price spike. Yeah. Um, and so... Those are similarities. What are the what are the, what are the what are the what are some of the differences? Um, well, I think uh, 1973 we were really sitting. A, we'd been in a bull market for about 24 years. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the charts, they, you go back to 1947 and the market. Well, okay, it had corrections, but so it was pretty extended. 
whereas uh, we've really only been going for 12 or so years uh, since 2009. Uh, secondly, if I look at the, let's say, the US economy, at housing starts and uh, vehicle manufacturing statistics, mm. um, housing starts are not overextended. They're running sort of around the average one and a half million a year, which, by the way, interesting, in America, housing starts have, have, have run at for about 60 years. Uh, but I'll digress for a second on that. Okay. Um, uh, because I, I wondered how this could be the case when I first came across it, when I was looking, fun enough, in 2008 at what was going on. Right. And so this is the number of new homes uh, new that are homes, starting to be built. Correct. Right. And it's a little bit larger than the, than the number of new net new homes because some homes are knocked down every year okay anyway, just it's a, it's, a, it's a round number and back in 1960 uh the u.s uh population was growing at three million a year mm. and today it's been growing at about three million a year again i scratched my head but actually it was growing back then at two percent and now it's growing at one percent so there you go so housing starts have run for a very long time at about half the number of the, the growth in the population headcount. Mm. Uh, I sort of understand that, two people per house. Uh, anyway, we are, we are in the middle of the range, which historically has ranged between a million and two million a year. We're, we're, we're at one and a half. And, and again, vehicle uh, uh, manufacturing statistics, they've been depressed because of COVID and so on. So, that, so there's not that. And household balance sheets in, are in reasonable shape. Okay. Uh, now, of course, we know government balance sheets aren't in that good shape. But they weren't that strong either in back in 1973. I mean, they, we were still recovering from World War II. Anyway, yeah. For better or worse, uh, that's... Okay, that, that, that's, there's that, the that, case that, for that, some optimism, that, I suppose. Yeah, correct. If I can just um, come back to that point about government balance sheets, Tim. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're speaking uh, a few days after Jeremy Hunt's become Chancellor, and I think, the, well, the day after, uh, he's basically reversed... Um, Lots of the the tax cuts in the in in the mini budget, which precipitated this huge sell off in the gilt market, uh, and this crisis for pension funds. I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, with your experience, I mean, what 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 do you think has gone quite so wrong there, uh, and who's to blame? Uh, I think we're you're asking me mainly about the pension fund. Yes, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Aside uh, from uh, what <laughs> seems to be, you know, political mismanagement. Yeah, I suppose. What, what do you think has gone wrong on the on the investing side there? How have pension well, funds ended up in this situation? Mismanagement. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's the journalist profession that's got it wrong. But that's another matter. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, no. Uh, on the LDI crisis, I mean, I tear my hair out. Mm. Um, uh, there are uh, there are a number of scapegoats. Right. None of them include, in my view, Quasi or Lizzie. Okay. Uh, um, I think the number one um, person who should be taking responsibility is the current governor of the Bank of England. And Andrew Bailey. Andrew Bailey. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm picking on him because mm. he has been in a senior regulatory position... Uh, for the whole of the last 10 years. Right, uh, he was head of the FCA. Uh, the FCA, precisely, yeah. and, and, and now head of the Bank of England. And uh, basically warnings that were given uh, to the Bank of England, into Australia, mm. uh, 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 about the LDI um, potential problems yeah. uh, were completely ignored. Okay. And, and then we 
then so that he, we put him up there, and then we uh, quite quite close to him. I put the actuarial profession, uh, I, 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 and uh, it never ceases to amaze me their lack of proper understanding of risk. By the way, okay, uh, and and the whole system has got obsessed um, by uh, short-term volatility. By the way, which in this case they're not probably taking into account. It's another ironic thing, right? But I mean, uh, they don't understand it. So uh, the the actuaries uh, and, and next people in 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 the in the um, uh, my rifle. <laughs> okay, uh, and, and and then I suppose you have to you have to blame up to a point the pension fund trustees, but I, I blame them less because they're not they're not the experts, although they could have asked more questions. Right, or some like Simon Wolfston did. Mm. Okay. And so just to, you know, to, so LDI, liability driven investing, you know, in essence, uh, to radically simplify things, these are pen massive pension funds using derivatives to try and meet their liabilities. In essence, it's the same as using leverage to increase their guilt exposure, which has a lot of negative consequences when guilts sell off rapidly. Correct. But I think there's another thing to make. Here. Yeah. It's very, it's very odd to me that, mm. that the, the regulatory system didn't want, once the problem began to emerge, say what we need here is liquidity. It, th th these were not solvency problems. Right. They, they were liquidity issues. Uh, and I mean, you know, pension funds basically uh, are, are, are financially very strong. What they had was a very short term liquidity problem. Yeah. Um, they, they couldn't make, meet the margin calls. Mm. And, you know, Terry Smith wrote in the FT that he thinks a lot of the problem is. Pension funds are investing in the wrong assets. They should be investing for long-term growth in equities. What do you think? On this, Terry and I are shoulder to shoulder. Okay. He's completely right. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think he made the point that some pension fund he was involved in, he'd invested in you know, 20 good yes, quality, good quality that stocks. That was the precursor to fund some equity. Yeah, and this is very Basically. much... Our approach, as I will get on to yeah. possibly later, okay, well, depending on how your interrogation goes. <laughs> well, let's get on to that now, Tim. So uh, as I referenced in the, the intro, you, you've set up two different asset management businesses, uh, at least two, I, sh I should probably say. Um, I suppose wh when you were starting uh, Guinness Asset Management, Guinness Global Investors 20 or so years ago, wh why did you want to do it again? Right, an interesting question. <clears throat> uh, well, I suppose there are... Several mm. quite simple reasons. Um, the success I had with Guinness Flight, and by the way, here it would be remiss of me not to mention the contribution of Howard Flight, now Lord Flight, who was my business partner throughout most of that period, mm. and his contribution. Anyway, that was a success that um, was enough in financial terms to enable me to buy a nice house in London, and a nice house in Italy. Uh, however, it didn't leave me with enough funds to enjoy the lifestyle to which these new mansions really required me to, to, to um, have. Secondly, I was much too young to retire. Um, and anyway, I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, I, enjoy, I enjoy the investment business. Mm which I think is, is perhaps uh, an important point. Um, you only live once. Um, what do you particularly uh, enjoy about it? Uh, well, I, I am 
I'm a curious person. Uh, and I enjoy uh, looking at the rise and fall of different business models and industries. Yeah. I uh, enjoy thinking about economics, uh, particularly on a very long-term basis. Uh, I also find that if you are lucky enough to work with uh, agreeable colleagues, you can have a good working environment. Uh, and of course, perhaps it's worth making the point that, that once I set up my own company, I was very much in control of that. Yeah. Uh, and that was something, that was an objective I very much had. Try, try, try and uh, you know, assemble over time uh, a team of intelligent, hardworking, total integrity, uh, agreeable and energetic people. Those are my sort of uh, mantras. And yeah. More or less, I hope I've achieved that. Um, I wanted, I mentioned hard flight. I suppose in all of us, there's a bit of, I wanted to prove that I could do it alone. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I am more of an entrepreneur, I think, than perhaps some fund managers who started businesses. Um, uh, and I could see that there was a great opportunity to build a new challenger uh, British asset manager. Mm. Um, I had lots of confidence that I could actually do that. I, I thought I had a very good approach to investing. I thought I had a good approach, which I'd sort of learnt on the job uh, as I was building up Guinness Flight. Mm. Um, uh, and so I thought I could do that. Um, the timing was also quite good. We just had a uh, the 2003 bear market. Right. We were coming out of that. Uh, equities were good value. Uh, I like to recover. Energy stocks, one of the things that I would, by chance, have started to focus on in 1998, mm. uh, were also quite well priced. The oil price was you know, $25 a barrel. Um, and then... Well, uh, so that's that's why I started it. Perhaps I should go on to then um, mention that, of course, luck plays a big part in things. Mm. Uh, and shortly after we started, the SARS crisis in uh, Asia began to wane, uh, and and Asian stocks. And one of our funds was a, which has been there right from the outset, was a China uh, fund, yeah. run by one of my colleagues, and uh, that from. The middle of 2003 began to storm ahead, uh, and also the oil price started to go on this journey from 25. It went to 35 dollars a barrel in uh, 2000. So what year am I? Yes, uh, um, uh, 2003. Yeah. Uh, 2004 it was 45. It got up to about 100 dollars by 2007. So luck played a part. Okay. Well, it sounds like well, luck played a part, as you say. Um, but, but interesting to hear that background. What, one more to go back a bit further. Even we we talked once before, and you, you told me that when you were at business school, um, you were looking into um, uh, the use of data in asset management. And I think this was in the the maybe nineteen seventies. You, you were doing that. Can you tell me a bit more about you know what you were what you were doing and, and why? I suppose. First of all, I must correct you. It was the late 1960s. Okay. Uh, and yes, 
um, I'd read engineering at Cambridge, and then I went straight uh, to MIT, to the business school there. And I, during my first year, I came across two very interesting people. Mm. Marvin Minsky, who was, who was um, very active in the world of artificial intelligence um, and trying to teach computers to speak. And, and also um, Arnie Amstutz, who people, it's not a name that rolls off the tongue of many people today, but he was right at the forefront of uh, using computers to uh, basically manipulate uh, data on investment management. Uh, and and that, that struck me as a very interesting area. It led me to then write a small you know, master's thesis on the use of information technology uh, in investment management. And um, I, I think you asked, you know, what, what, what was, what did all that mean? What was it all about? Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, uh, there's a bit of a journey here, but we'll start, I think initially, uh, you know, I'm lazy like some other people, and I, you know, I, I saw a huge attraction in getting machines uh, to do part of the job that mm. otherwise, you know, analysts were having to do. You know, lots of scribbling and reading and so Slide on. Slide rules. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that what computers uh, were doing then uh, was they were taking uh, data back history of 20, 25 years of uh, financial accounting records, share price information, dividends, the price earnings ratio, uh, and manipulating them and being able to present useful tables or useful graphs uh, to help you look at what all this data meant. Mm. Uh, so that, I think, was, was um, the first thing that I was attracted to. And in fact, I, was then, I then got a job back in London uh, using these skills in corporate finance. And it was very valuable helping one uh, look at what might happen to a company's uh, financial results when it made an acquisition. Right. Uh, and you made some assumptions on what that would do to margins and so on and projected two or three years uh, forward. Uh, and But I want to just go on because it, 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 uh, things, uh, over time, um, my uh, approach and thinking about uh, the way you can use uh, information technology to to um, benefit investment management ha has evolved. And uh, when I moved over to investment management, I was from corporate finance. I was struck by the fact that when I was doing corporate finance, I might have six weeks to go into an in-depth evaluation of a company and its accounts and so on. Yeah. And of course, I thought I knew better than anybody how to do that. Then when I'm moved over uh, to the investment management side, I came across a completely new problem, that there were so many stocks mm. that you didn't have enough time. I mean, you, you literally, you, you, you had a, a universe of 500 stocks and there were only 220 working days in the year and you spent half of them doing something else. You only had about an hour per stock. You know, what were you going to do about it? And, and uh, initially, uh, I suppose, um, you uh, do, well, what did the large firms do? They, of course, employed lots of analysts, <laughs> uh, huge teams of analysts. Well, we weren't a large firm, so we couldn't do that. 
Well, you, maybe you look for brokers and see if they're recommending stocks. Maybe you focus on the ones they're recommending. Um, uh, or whatever. But after, uh, after uh, a few years, uh, I had a light bulb moment. Okay. Uh, and I suddenly realized that uh, you could uh, use information technology to intelligently screen this glut of data that was out there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you could then prioritize what you looked at. And, and, that, and, and that really has been the key to how I've been approaching investment management for the last 22 years. Mm. Uh, obviously, you, you then, after you've prioritized what you're going to look at, you can then use the other aspect of information technology to present it very easily. Uh, I won't quite say at the press of a button, but you know, to look at the charts and the trends uh, that make you help, 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 help make you uh, reach uh, the right decision. Yeah. I... I I suppose if I can ask a kind of follow-up question to that, what, one of the things about use of, use of data is, um, you know, as soon as one person starts doing something, you might have an edge doing that for a, a couple of years, but quickly other people will, will start to copy, copy uh, that, that kind of practice, right? So I suppose how do you, you know, with your approach to screening, how has it kind of evolved today? And, you know, is there anything that Guinness does that you feel is kind of unique? Uh, okay. Yes, we have an edge for a bit, I agree. Uh, then we have to accept that, that um, others can follow and copy and work it out. Yeah. Uh, so my, my, I think my main answer is mm. there are many uh, good investors out there. Uh, almost all of them have a different approach to managing investments. The key is they've, they've come up with an approach that works for them is then to do that approach well. Yeah. So, so that's, that's my rather feeble pushback. We try and do what we're doing well. We have, of course, evolved it. I, I can sort of give you an example of, of um, how, how we do it. And I don't, I, I don't think, the point is, I don't think anybody uh, looks at investment in the way I'm now going to subscribe, uh, describe. I may be wrong. Um, we, we, after the 2008 bear market, came back to that first question, yeah. we, we uh, sort of got into a huddle. We were thinking, uh, at, at that moment in time, we had been focused for the, the previous 10 years or so on energy and renewable energy yeah. and China uh, and innovation. Those were our four things. And in... 2010, um, we were thinking, what do investors actually want now? We enjoy managing those funds, but what do they want? Yeah. Maybe they don't want those. And we thought, well, what they want is something that is very well diversified, global. Uh, they want it to give them probably a reasonable and growing income. Um, and to um, be in quality companies that will sail through the next bear market. Yeah. And so we thought, well, why don't we come up with a fund that does that? And so we, we set our intelligent screen now to focus on companies that had a consistently high cash flow return on investment every single year for 10 years in a row. 
and uh, we then eliminated those that had excessive debt, uh, and we then began to, to um, so that, that reduced the universe from 8,000 companies with a market capitalization of over 500 million or a billion yeah. uh, to uh, about 400. And then we said, let's take that 400 quality companies and look at those that pay a, uh, a reasonable and potentially growing dividend. That reduced it to 200. And then we said, let's look at that 200 and let's find the 30 or 35 that are uh, the best value. Uh, and so we um, screened for value using various metrics and um, how sentiment was evolving towards them and so on. And then, of course, we go into our deep dive uh, and we sit around a room and discuss the pros and cons of every investment. Yeah. And then eventually um, we um, uh, come up with a, with, with a portfolio. And, um, and that's your global income fund, which is now Guinness's biggest fund. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Okay. Well, well th thanks, Tim. I mean, maybe, you know, quick, we're running slightly short time, but maybe if we can quickly come on to the funds that you, you yourself kind of work, work closely on, um, in particular, the, the Guinness Global Energy Fund, which invests in, you know, mostly oil and gas, okay. and then sustainable energy. I mean, in your experience of investing in energy markets, how kind of crazy a moment do you think we're in? I mean, okay, I'm going to answer that, but I forgot to mention one last thing sure. about, uh, uh, about one of the things we do. We do have equal weight portfolios. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, that's something, again, I got from MIT. Uh, it, it's, if, you want to, if you want to reduce stock-specific risk to a reasonable level, equal weight portfolios is a good way to go. Um, and I also did, then I, I was asked, why don't we run our winners and so on? Yeah. Um, and I did some research into the merits of running equal weight versus not. And I found some very good research done in the Cass Business School that showed that if you looked in the last 40 years, equal weighted indices had outperformed market cap weighted indices. Uh, and actually equal weight was a very good smart beta portfolio construction metric. But anyway, that was that. I just forgot to mention that. Earlier. No, thanks, Tim. Yeah, uh, now you are asking crazy, uh, crazy energy world. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, finishing on the note. Yeah, I mean, how? yeah, crazy energy world. What, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think I wouldn't use the word crazy. Okay. Uh, well, not particularly. We, we are in a world, however, where the cost of energy has jumped back to levels we've sort of seen twice in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, first of all, we had, uh, and when I say energy, the cost of energy has jumped, it's now back at about 12% of GDP. Uh, when you add together oil, gas, fossil fuels, and renewables. Mm. Uh, and it got that high towards the end of the 70s, uh, at the time of the you know, Iranian Revolution uh, and the Iran -Iraq, first Iran-Iraq War. Uh, it got quite high in the sort of 2006-7 period, not quite as high as 12%, maybe maybe 10%, and now we're back at 12%. And, and what uh, I think you can say with some confidence is that this level of energy um, causes uh, will cause a recession. Okay. Um, how long will it last? Uh, well, I'm I, I am reasonably sanguine. Um, I, I I think that the um, 
energy prices do eventually mean revert uh, to a market clearing level and that we will see this come down from 12 to maybe 8% of GDP, probably not down to the lower levels that we saw quite a lot of the last 50 years, but that's where it will go, and I can talk about that if you want. Um, obviously, within the bigger picture of energy, uh, we just need to make the point that gas has been... Gas is the one area that I might have used the word crazy in. Right. Um, because the, the spike in the gas price, particularly at some moments... Uh, in the last summer, what was pretty extraordinary. Right. Um, th that, by the way, one of the reasons for that is that gas um, doesn't have nearly s such a good global market as oil does. Right, it's much but, harder to transport. Yeah, correct. You need pipelines or you need LNG tankers and, and you need the facilities that will gasify or regasify. Um, or reliquify, sorry. Um, the, but what I will share with you is, mm. is, is, is something that a lot of people don't, haven't really picked up on, the gas prices actually started because of China's behavior, not Putin's. China had a hissy fit uh, when Australia said, uh, your laboratory in Wuhan has linked the COVID virus. And China said, if you go on saying that, we are going to stop buying your coal. And they did. I see. And, and so they then started uh, scooping up coal from Indonesia and other places and using up their own uh, stocks of coal. They found they were running out uh, and the price of coal was going through the roof, so they started buying gas. So that's what caused the gas price to begin to start moving up. Putin saw this uh, and has then uh, obviously aggravated it quite considerably. I see. But I think it will, uh, it, it will mean revert. I'll just tell you something else about what's going on in Europe. Yeah. Nu nu nuclear... Um, f first of all, gas... Gas inventories are now getting back to OK levels because a huge effort has gone into importing LNG. Uh, and I think there's a reasonable chance we've now got a gas to see us through uh, the next um, winter. Uh, and meanwhile, nuclear power, people don't really talk about this, but it's quite, quite weird. Uh, a very high number of French nuclear power stations uh, have been down uh, for the last six months because they discovered some corrosion problems. Okay, uh, uh, I haven't uh, really uh, come uh, across About that. 12 months ago. They will come back. Yeah, and I suppose, well, maybe, you know, if we can finish on a, on, on a kind of last related note, given you, you know, you work on both this traditional energy area and sustainability area, I mean, what do you, both of which have been strong performers um, this year, I, I, I would say, um, where, where would you say the best opportunity is at the moment? Where, where are you kind of looking across those two areas? I think short term, the best beneficiary is going to be traditional energy. Okay. Uh, I, I believe uh, e energy prices uh, will take time to subside. Uh, one of the things that people need to understand about, about traditional energy is that uh, supply and demand, both supply and demand, are very inelastic. Yeah. Very price inelastic. You can put the price up and you don't immediately get a surge of new supply. Uh, and you don't immediately get people cutting their demand, but over time it happens. Yeah. So, so, so the adjustments do occur. Uh, yes, we've got a situation where um, the rise of uh, electric vehicles uh, is making oil and gas companies pretty cautious about exploration and developing new supply. 
and you can sort of paint a picture where demand for oil is going to decline as we go the EV route, and, but so is supply. My, my, my suspicion is that uh, the balance will remain reasonably tight. And that, by the way, is what we should all want, because that's a very good thing for helping a, a, a reasonable, okay, oil price yeah. helps the development of um, renewable energy. Uh, that then will lead me on to, I haven't talked about the gas price, but I think, again, that will, that will come back yeah. to some sort of normality because the current price in Europe is absurd compared to the cost of producing it. So there will be efforts to produce more um, uh, LNG and, 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 and America will start exporting quite a lot more. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I then think, however, uh, and I may not have time to get, get this across, but that... Um, you know, sustainable energy, I don't, I don't think people properly understand um, how much uh, investment there is going to be in solar and wind over the next um, uh, 10 to 15 years. It is huge. Um, and um, uh, there is a, I don't know if you've heard of Chris Goodall, uh, he's 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 written a really great he's written two really great books one called the switch and uh, and uh, the second one what, what what we should do now but he, he he is painting a picture where we need to move our uh, solar and wind gigawatts installed up about 17 times and he's got some very good numbers he explains why um as we go to uh, EVs that uses that 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 pushes our electricity up from 300 terawatts by so much, and then we, we then we stop using electricity for steel. That's another chunk, and then when we start using electricity for heating, that's another chunk. And he sees the number of terawatt hours in the UK we will consume going up five times, okay. from 300 terawatt hours to 1500 terawatt hours, and that is going to produce a huge amount of investment. That's a UK example, but it will happen all around the world. Yeah. And so, the, the, so I think sustainable is, is what then comes second, and, and it's a pretty good place too. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Tim. On that note, I think we, we've more or less run out of time. So, yeah, th thanks very much for coming in today. It was very interesting to learn more about your uh, kind of history in asset management and, and what you're doing today as well. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And the last thing to say is uh, thank you very much uh, for, for listening, and please look out for more Funds Fanatics Show podcasts soon. Thank <laughs> you.